during the interwar period between the first and second world war the first world war wasn't called world war one because well the second one hadn't happened yet and they called it world war one they called it sorry i my papers are all mixed up just a second while i'm doing this uh i just want to give a shout out to all the people who are joining us online i know that uh yeah, a lot of us are around in different different places, and so on a passage that has to do a lot with things that we can't see. I'm just thinking of the people right now that are with us that we can't see. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna restart. Is everyone okay with that? All right. During the interwar period, between the first and second world war, the first world war wasn't called World War One because the second hadn't happened yet. They called World War I the World War, the Great War, or most dramatically, the war to end all wars. This was humanity's penultimate example of what happened when we used technology for evil, when governments made poor choices, when we don't all work together and instead seek our own nation's best interests. Because the war was so terrible in such a waste of human life and effort, how could a war like that ever happen again? How could we ever repeat that mistake? Of course, during the interwar period, you know, not everyone believed that another war was impossible. But even the most pessimistic person would be devastated to see that just 20 years after the war to end all wars finished, an even worse war began one where technology was used for evil on an even greater scale, and where governments were willing to make even greater human sacrifices to achieve their goals. How do you account for that? And not just in some abstract academic way, but if you witness the death and destruction firsthand. Well, a, a major false teaching arose as a reaction to World War II where the supernatural evil in passages like ours today instead actually refer to human institutions. You know, the corrupt human institutions which created chaos and destruction seemed more real and much more evil than some more abstract spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, that what that's really referring to is institutional forces in the earthly places. But that doesn't fit within the broader context of Scripture where spiritual powers are shown to be real all throughout Scripture. From the very beginning, the supernatural is talked about as having an important impact. One of those impacts is the evil of human institutions. Since Satan has, you know, real power and is influencing the world, we will see institutions carry out great evil. We will. And we'll see individuals carry out great sin. But our ultimate enemy is Satan himself. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. A spiritual war is raging around us, a war with far greater consequences than any human struggle. 
where enemy is pure evil and is seeking our complete destruction. Whether we want to join it or not, we're involved. And if we're not prepared, it won't go too well for us. So if we're to fight him, we face a monumental task because we can't see our enemy and his weapons are invisible. If we attempt to fight in our own strength, we'll fail. Yet there's one who's already defeated our enemy. And in this passage, we're instructed to stand firm in his strength. Let's pray and ask for help. Heavenly Father, give us humility to recognize our weakness and faith to recognize your strength. Give us hope, not fear, as we fight sin, both in our own life and in the world around us. Amen. Our first section, our first of three sections, is to stand firm in God's strength. Section one, stand firm in God's strength. Our passage today starts with the word finally. You know, you might have been really feeling this word finally when we got to the end of Genesis or the end of Revelation, like, oh, finally. But this finally here isn't a side finally. It's not like a sit back and relax, like, yes, we finally made it. This is a lean forward in your chair or in your pew. You know, like, now listen closely. This last part is really important type of finally. Because what Paul's about to say is the culmination of this letter. We saw how the first half of Ephesians was full of gospel indicatives, statements about what God has done, especially focusing on the work of Christ on the cross. And then the second half was full of imperatives, where if, you know, if these indicatives, if these statements are true, then this is what it means for our life. And so here we are kind of at the end with one last final imperative. A very important gospel indicative is that Christ defeated evil, and so our war is not one of attempting to achieve victory. The victory has already been won. As Peter O'Brien puts it in his commentary for this passage, believers live in the overlap of the ages between the already and the not yet. We've heard a lot about the already and not yet recently as we're going through Revelation. and we, we thought we were done with it, but we're back. But in this overlap of the ages, the victory has been won and the outcome is sure. We just haven't seen the outcome fully come to fruition yet. It's like this morning when I woke up and I was going outside where it had finished raining but there was still drops falling on my head as I was walking outside because there was droplets on the leaves and the trees. And so the rain was done, but there was still water falling from the sky over my head. The victory has been won, but the outcome just fully hasn't come to fruition yet. And until Christ returns, the war will rage on. But since we know how it ends, who will win it, and by what power it'll be won, the game plan is laid out before us. Don't rely on yourself. Instead, stand firm in God's strength. We are to stand firm. 
Some are tempted, you know, to sit back and be passive in their spiritual life. You know, ignore the war. Pretend it, doesn't, it isn't happening. You know, we can't see it, and so therefore it, it can't exist. And, you know, we just get distracted by what's going on in our life, by work, by hobbies, you know, by good things, and kind of either ignore or minimize the spiritual battle raging around us. Or other people, you know, are fully aware of the war, and so they want to be involved, but they're involved by their own strength. They're fighting it by their own strength. And this passage pushes back on both of those. It says, stand firm, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Turn back to chapter 1 with me, to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. It says this, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God's great power raised Christ from the dead. He now sits in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The evil supernatural forces mentioned in our passage cannot stand against him. In God's power, the power that raised Christ from the dead is possible for us to experience. It's the very power that we're to stand firm in. It surrounds us, it envelops us as we embark into battle. And the battle is really intense. Our passage mentions wrestling, and the weapon we're given is a sword. This is close quarters, hand-to-hand combat. You know, movies about ancient warfare and really about warfare in general, you know, make it look a lot more glamorous than it really is. Hand-to-hand combat is extremely terrifying. You know, even long after guns were invented, the order to fix bayonets and charge the enemy was largely a psychological one. If you can imagine standing on a battlefield and your enemy is literally charging at you. Their goal is to kill you. So you have two options, either stand and fight hand to hand or to retreat. I used to work a, a job where I did catering and I would finish late at night, like past midnight. And I didn't have a car, so I'd ride the bus. And so I'd be walking around in the city late at night, you know, like waiting for an hour for the bus to show up. And I thought about it, like, you know, what would I do if I ever got mugged? I never really, you know, felt like I wasn't safe, but I was just like, what would I do if I got mugged? And my decision was really easy. It was, I'm not going to try to fight someone trying to take my wallet, especially if they have a weapon. Like, if they have a knife, I'm not going to be able to beat them in a fight. And I'm not willing, you know, to die over my wallet. That's what hand-to-hand combat is. It's someone's, you know, standing not too far away from you with a very sharp object. And their goal, in the case of a battle, isn't to take your wallet, but rather to take your life. And in the vast majority of casualties in ancient warfare occurred when soldiers started looking around on the battlefield and thinking, you know, 
I don't know if we're going to win this. I don't think we're going to win this battle. And I don't want to be one of the last people stuck on here on the losing side, so I'm going to get out of here quick. And as soon as people on your side start running away, you're going to start running away too. And so that's when most of the casualties would happen, when most of the deaths and injuries would happen, is when one side would retreat and then the winning side would chase after them and try to kill or capture as many people as possible. You know, this is, this is a horrifying, gruesome situation. The, the choice of talking about war wouldn't have been lost on Paul's original audience. And I'm, I'm hoping that it's not lost on us. This is, the stakes are very high. They're as high as they get. And despite the horrors of war and the horrors of battle, this passage's tone isn't one of fear, but instead a tone of confidence. And why is that? Well, it's because the battle is already won. You know, don't break ranks in fear. Don't turn your back from the enemy and flee, flee in terror. Stand firm in the victory of Christ. In this battle that isn't against flesh and blood, it's not against other people, but rather against Satan himself, we know we won't lose. We know we won't lose the battle and we know we'll win the war. Not because we're so strong, not because we can defeat Satan or the forces of darkness, but because the strength, but because of the strength we're, of the one we're fighting for. And God doesn't just throw us into the fray, unequipped, unprepared. He doesn't just, you know, throw us into the battle as helpless bystanders. He equips us so that we can be warriors participating in this great struggle. We're to stand firm by putting on the full armor of God. The phrase, the, the armor of God, has a couple meanings. It means the armor, more obviously, is from God. He's given it to us. And it also means that it's God's armor. It's his very own armor. Several places in the book of Isaiah, God puts on the armor to go into spiritual battle. One of those instances, Isaiah 59, 17, says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And in this passage, he instructs us to put on a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. This is his very armor that he wore into battle. And now, we're instructed to put it on ourselves. Not too long ago in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, we're instructed to, to be imitators of God. Here, a chapter later, we're called to be imitators of him in a very specific way by putting on his armor, wearing it into battle. As a kid, we'd play all sorts of pretend games, like make-believe. And some of them were more exciting, like, oh, we're an adventurer, a warrior, or something like that. But some of them were really mundane. Like, you know, my brother would be a used car salesman trying to sell me a Hot Wheel. And, you know, he's just trying to scrape by and make a living, and I'm trying to get the best deal I can on my, on my car. And, you know, sometimes we'd wear costumes, and we'd kind of dress up, and we're playing the part of something exciting or something simple. But that's not what's happening here. You know, God doesn't give us his armor as toys and say, like, oh, look how cute you are. You know, you're pretending to be a warrior. No, he gives us his armor so we can actually use it for its intended purpose. We're not here to play pretend. Ephesians 4.24 tells us to put on the new self. That's what we're doing here. 
We're taking off the old self, we're leaving it behind, and we're putting on the new, trading our dirty rags for gleaming armor. And in the chaotic fray of hand-to-hand combat, a well-armored soldier has a major advantage over someone that's just wearing the shirt on his back. The armor we're putting on isn't a fashion decision, and it's, it's not even one out of practicality, more so out of necessity. We're like Iron Man, where by himself, he's not a superhero, he's just a normal person. He just would be a, a helpless bystander, but through his armor, he is able to be involved in the situation. Us entering the fight isn't because we have superpowers, but because we're given armor that has superpowers. So let's talk about the armor, which brings us to section number two. Stand firm and put on the armor of God. Stand firm and put on the armor of God. Now, as we go through the different pieces of armor, because we're going to go through them all, it's important to keep all of this in the context of the first, first section of standing firm in God's strength. In verses 13 and 14, we're reminded three times to stand. Paul isn't going to let us forget. Stand firm by being equipped with the whole armor of God. If we were to stand firm, it's through this armor and all of it, all of the armor. We can't ignore one piece and we can't leave behind the helmet or the shield. The full set is required. So let's look at it. Well, the first piece of armor is the belt of truth. Now, what does, what does it mean to put on truth? Well, there's two main aspects to it. And the first aspect results in the second. The first is that this is a call to be strengthened by God's truth. As the lies we believe are replaced with the truths of the gospel, we'll become more like God and be less susceptible to other lies. In John 8, Jesus says to his followers, If you abide in my word, you will truly be my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Through knowing the truth of the gospel, by putting it on, allowing it to change us, we will be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the light. We'll shut off the old self and experience new life in Christ. And this results in the second aspect of putting on truth. As we're being set free, we'll also display the truth in our lives. The internal working of the gospel will will result in external change, which will be evident to other people. The belt of truth protects us from our enemy, and it's a testimony to others. It's like, I don't watch boxing very often, but it's like those massive belts that boxers win when they win a match and when they win it you know when they win a title they get this giant belt and when they come into a match they sometimes have their posse behind them that's like holding up these these big belts and it's this statement it's this signal to everyone there like look who you're about to deal with like this guy is the heavyweight champion of the world and here's his belt to prove it when we put on the belt of truth We strap it on and we walk behind God. We're walking behind Christ, following him. We're saying, look at what what he's done. We're saying, you know, see this guy I'm with? He's really good. He's so good that he fought death and won. 
Yeah, do you remember that match, Jesus versus death? You know, he got knocked down. It looked like he was out, but that was just part of his plan because he came back up and he, he took death out. He defeated death. Yeah, that's this guy. By putting on truth, we're being transformed by what it does in us. And then that transformation is displayed through our lives. And our lives become a testimony, not to our greatness, not to our power, but to the power of Christ. The second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. This piece also has two aspects, where the first results in the second. Through the gospel, we experience a right standing before God. Because of Christ's death on the cross, we are covered by his righteousness. Putting on this breastplate means putting on God's very own righteousness. In Isaiah 11:5, God puts on righteousness. He wears it. And as imitators of God, we're putting on that very same garment, that very same righteousness. It's not that we're putting on a similar one, that this is some imitation product, you know, the, the real one's leather, this one's pleather, but it kind of looks the same. You know, he doesn't give us the plans to make it ourselves and we hope it ends up turning out all right. Like, no, he's taking off, you know, he takes his righteousness. He says, here, this is yours. I want you to wear it. He's paid our debts. He's washed us clean. His perfection now belongs to us. And it's definitely not because we've achieved perfection. It's because he's given it to us. And that has immense implications for our vertical relationship with God because now we can know him. And that transforms our horizontal relationships because putting on the breastplate of righteousness also means carrying it out into the world. Ephesians 4.24 calls us to put on the new man and be imitators of him. And this involves an internal transformation of our thoughts, desires, and motivations. It can't just stop there, though. Because that internal transformation, if it's really happening, will lead to an external transformation that causes us to be ambassadors of God, displaying who he is and what he's about. Next, are the shoes of the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This one's a little bit more wordy, but it's just as good. Just so you wait. Isaiah 52, 7 paints a picture of a messenger running on the mountains, bringing a message of hope to a desolate Jerusalem. It says, this is what Isaiah 52, 7 says. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The instruction to stand firm and the armor imagery, you know, it it might give us the perception of a purely defensive stance. And we are supposed to have a defensive stance. We are supposed to brace and wait for the impact, wait for the big wave. You know, but we're not locked up in our fortress, kind of like peering through the window at the chaos outside. We're not like one of the three little piggies going like, ooh, here comes the big bad wolf. Good thing my, you know, house is made out of bricks. 
No, we're supposed to go on the attack. We're to be messengers of the gospel. We're to be messengers on the mountain whose feet are beautiful because they're feet that are bringing good news. And that good news is one of peace. And it might, it might seem a bit paradoxical that this passage is hammering home, you know, stand firm, there's a war going on, you need to be fighting in it, and put on your shoes of peace and spread a message of peace. It seems paradoxical because this peace required destruction to occur and requires ongoing destruction. In the second half of Ephesians 2, Paul talks about how through Christ's blood, through his death, and by destroying the requirement that we be good enough, we can now have peace with God. Christ's death, a very non-peaceful event, had to occur so we could experience peace with God. Christ's death allows the hostility between believers to be destroyed because we're united with Christ. The differences between us of nationality, ethnicity, age, education, politics, wealth, they're not to be dividing walls. We're to be united as one body with Christ as the head. And we're to go and proclaim this peace created through the destruction of hostility, both between God and people and between each other. We're to stand firm, putting on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness in the gospel, and also the shield of faith, which extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil one. Movie directors love flaming arrows. You know, if you were to make a bingo sheet for ancient warfare movies, flaming arrows would have to be on it. And they're not just in fiction. Roman historians give accounts of Roman armies facing enemies that used flaming arrows, which was a problem for them because their shields were made of wood covered with leather, and then they had metal braces on them, but primarily wood covered by leather. And so a burning arrow stuck in a flammable shield is not ideal, and you don't want your shield to light on fire, but you also don't want to snuff out the fire if there's another barrage of arrows coming. But I have a life hack for you from the Roman army. If there's a possibility you'll be facing flaming arrows in an upcoming battle, simply soak your shield in water for a little bit. And that's what the Roman army did. And this, these flaming arrows that were supposed to have this immense psychological effect were just normal arrows now, which can be blocked by shields. And throughout the Old Testament, the shield is a symbol of God's protection. God has promised to protect his people from their enemy, Satan. You know, as believers, we'll experience pain, suffering, we'll experience discomfort and problems. That's not what we've been promised to be protected from. You know, at the end of our passage today, Paul talks about how he's an ambassador in chains. He's experienced great suffering for the gospel, and he's witnessed great suffering for the gospel. He knows what it means to count the cost of following Christ. What God has promised to protect us from is spiritual death. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside 
still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our lives as believers is one of battle, of being surrounded by an enemy seeking our destruction, an enemy we can't see, an enemy we can't defeat on our own. So as we enter battle, we must have faith in the saving work of the gospel and the power of God's protection. Stand firm. Have faith that even as the battle rages on, even if all seems lost, or if you get injured in the fighting, you will be safe. And one day you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, celebrating his defeat of death and evil. And if you're sitting here thinking, you know, I don't know if I have faith or if my faith is strong enough, hear these words from 1 Corinthians 2. This is Paul speaking. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our faith isn't in our ability to believe. Our faith isn't in our ability to have faith. Your faith shouldn't be in your own ability to have faith. It's in the power of God. Ask him to help you to believe and trust in his power. All of these pieces of armor are deeply connected. They all make up a full set together. I'm going to talk about the last two pieces together just really quickly. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. From the very beginning of Scripture, when God spoke the universe into existence, the Word of God is shown to have incredible power. When the gospel is spoken into the darkness, life is born. Those in the realm of darkness need to hear the gospel, and we're to be messengers proclaiming it to them. There's salvation in the Word of God. We're to wear that salvation as a helmet, experiencing it for ourselves and identifying us with Christ. We're to carry the gospel as a weapon into battle against our enemy, the devil, so that others might believe. Which brings us to our final section, our third and final section. Stand firm in intercession. So that was our six pieces of armor. You know, we need the whole set. We can't neglect any of them. 
And thankfully for us, they're all connected. As we experience the gospel of Christ, truth, righteousness, peace, salvation, faith, and the word of God will transform us and be more and more evident in our lives. The final piece we're instructed on isn't given a specific item of armor, but it's actually talked about more than any of the other six. This final piece, this final weapon, is prayer. It's to be all-encompassing in our lives. The word all is used four times in verse 18. Prayer is foundational and crucial. It's our supply line. General Barrow, who was the commander of the Marine Corps, once said about war, that amateurs talk about tactics, but professionals study logistics. Amateurs talk about tactics, but professionals study logistics. And with the war in Ukraine, supplies and logistics you know, have been talked a lot about in the news. Trucks, fuel, ammunition, food, you know, these elements of war that are commonly taken for granted by casual observers are incredibly important to the people involved in the conflict and often decide the outcome of battles in the overall war. Prayer is to be our supply line and a weapon. It provides direct access to God, our source of strength. And since believers are also in this fight together, we're to intercede for one another. No believer is supposed to be a lone ranger. You know, Roman soldiers actually couldn't put on their armor themselves. It was really heavy and it needed to be laced up really tight. And so they needed another soldier to help them put it on. We need each other's help in preparation for battle and during the battle. And that's part of the beauty of the full armor of God. When we're protected, when we feel safe, then we can look around at those around us on the battlefield and help. You know, self-help is really popular. You know, we want to figure it out ourselves. We will want to read a book, watch a lecture, listen to a podcast, and self-improve. You know, we, we just want a simple DIY process for figuring out your problems and becoming a better person. But the issue with that is that for some it can become this obsession that prevents other people from speaking into their lives. And it creates self-absorption where we're so focused on improving ourselves for our own good that we don't look up and out. We don't see the people around us and their needs. We're called to stand firm, which is not an isolated endeavor. We need to stand firm together, pointing one another to the gospel, pointing one another to the victory of Christ. Firstly, it's through putting on God's armor that he both wore himself and has now provided to us through. Secondly, we have fellow warriors that will watch our back and we watch theirs. I'm going to end the sermon today with just an ending summary statement. So if you've been sitting there with your, your pen and paper the whole time, just like, man, I wish Ben would say something worth writing down. Now's, now's your chance. I'm going to say it a few times. So this is an ending summary of, this whole, of, our, of the whole sermon. Through the gospel, we are to stand firm in God's power, putting on his armor and interceding for each other. Through the gospel, we are to stand firm in God's power, putting on his armor and interceding for each other. Through the gospel, we are to stand firm in God's power, 
putting on his armor and interceding for each other. Each week, we come to this table as a reminder of the power of God. How our ability to stand firm against sin and evil is not from ourselves, but completely from the saving death of Christ. You know, if you believe that, I invite you to join. And if you don't, I invite you to participate through observing and asking questions. But I'd ask you, why not believe? Why not rely on Christ instead of yourself? Let's partake of the Lord's table. You can come and receive the elements and then take them back to your seats where we'll take them together.